So Matthew chapter 20, if you have your Bible open in Matthew chapter 20, um, it's, it's true, isn't it? It's hard to be a Christian. Like, it's, it's hard to follow Jesus. It's, it's easy to start. It's hard to keep going. The, the demands of following Jesus, the expectations of following Jesus, the realities that come into your life as a follower of Jesus, it's, it's hard. Um, you see this in the gospel narratives themselves. So here in this passage, we come across a couple of blind men who are following Jesus, and it seems like an ideal opportunity to jump on board following Jesus. But in reality, following Jesus is going to bring all kinds of suffering. In the immediate context, Jesus has predicted explicitly three times that when they go to Jerusalem... He's going to be rejected. He's going to be handed over. He's going to be betrayed. He is going to be whipped, beaten, mocked, spat on, and even crucified. And if you follow him, you're throwing in your lot with someone who's going to suffer. That begins to play itself out in the next couple chapters, as we're going to see over the next several weeks. When Jesus goes into Jerusalem, there is opposition, one after another, wave after wave, of opposition from outside. Those who hate him, <clears throat> those who want to trip him up, those who want to make him fall. And it looks like they win. Because in fact, they beat him, they mock him, they spit on him, and they put him to death. If you're following Jesus because you expect <clears throat> him to be a great king, and then you see the way people respond to him, all of a sudden, you're like, is this really the way people should respond to a great king? What about this reality? Not just the opposition from outside, but the disappointment inside. So, Jesus, in the previous chapters leading up to where we are in Matthew chapter 20, has been describing what life will be like in the kingdom of heaven that's coming to earth. It's going to be characterized by humility. The last shall be first, the first shall be last. Sounds great. It's going to be a kingdom, he says in Matthew 18, where the, the greatest among you is the least of all, like a little child among you. And, and people are going to love each other so much that rather than causing you to sin, I'm going to sacrifice my rights, I'm going to go out of my way to help you not stumble into sin. And, and when you do fall into sin or when you start to wander like a sheep, I'm going to reflect the heart of the Father. I'm going to go after you and I'm going to get you and I'm going to bring you back. And this is what the community is going to be like. It's going to be a, a community of people who uh, forgive 70 times 7, no matter how many times we're offended. A kingdom that's governed by this reality that I myself was a person who owed a great debt to a king that I could never repay. But he, in his mercy, forgave my debts. So now I freely, willingly, happily forgive the debts of everyone around me who owes me. That sounds like a great kingdom. If you join, if you start following Jesus, believing this is what it's going to be like. And then you have your eyes on the people around you. And you live for a little while and realize that, oh, man, Christians suck sometimes. They, they, they hurt you. They fall short. 
this glorious standard that we have of what this kingdom is going to be like. So, so now we have this crazy reality that it's like if we're looking at the people outside and how they respond to Jesus, it doesn't seem like he's a great king. And if we look at the people inside and how they're responding, how they're living out the kingdom, this doesn't seem like the kingdom of a great king. And all of a sudden, this starts to lead to disillusionment and despair and eventually distance between us and our king as we follow a little further back and a little further back and a little further back. If we're going to follow Jesus like these two blind men, get in line and follow Jesus to Jerusalem where he'll suffer, if we're going to follow Jesus, we need to have a vision. We need to have clarity of sight of who he actually is. We need to see what the blind men saw when we look at Jesus. We need to take our eyes off of the people around us, off of the people in the world, and have our eyes fixed on him, the one who we are following. All of that begs the question, what do the blind men actually see? What do the blind men see when they look at Jesus? Here's, here's the first thing. They see, they see in him the fulfillment of promise. The fulfillment of promise. The fulfillment of all the prophecies. And this is amazing. This is what Jesus himself said. Remember all the way back in Matthew chapter 5 when he began his teaching. He said, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And, and Matthew, knowing that Jesus was going to say that, started his gospel by saying, this is Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David. This is what these blind men miraculously and wonderfully see. Verse 20, or verse 29 rather. As they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him, and behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside, so that you understand their situation. They're sitting by the roadside because people are doing the pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the festival, and so hopefully by sitting here, people who are in a religious mood will give them alms as they're on the way to temple to care for them, to provide for their needs. And so they're hoping that the increased foot traffic with the festival will give them something. But as the people walk by on the dusty, dirty roads, they are sitting on the ground where the dust kicks up. They are dirty. They are impoverished. They have nothing. And so they're begging. And now all of a sudden, it's not just the usual increased foot traffic. There's a crazy big crowd, a huge crowd. And so they want to know what's going on. They're asking, as you can imagine, as a person who can't see but can hear a whole ruckus, you want to know what's going on. So they ask what's going on and they hear that it's Jesus. And their response <clears throat> is to cry out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. Understand this. When it says they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David, it implies there's a continuing, ongoing action. This is not like, hey, they said one time, have mercy. No one would tell you to shut up if you're in a crowd and you said that a whole bunch of, or you said that just once. It's when you keep saying the same thing loudly over and over again. I have children in my home, so I know this happens sometimes. It keeps saying the same thing over and over again loudly, and it grates, right? And so the people, even though they're in a crowd, they're surrounded by ruckus already. They're annoyed. Why do you keep calling out? Would you stop it? They rebuke them. Be silent. But they cry all the more. Lord, have mercy on us, son of. David. 
you know what the title Son of David means? It's a, it's a messianic title, a title of the Messiah. It says, you are the promised king. All the way back in 2 Samuel 7, God gave a promise to David that his son was going to sit on the throne and that he would reign forever and that this would be good news for all the world. And the people have been waiting, waiting, waiting. We've seen this in the 12, right? In the minor prophets, they're waiting and waiting. And as the land is destroyed and turned over and the temple is destroyed over and over, there's no Davidic king, there's no son of David. But here, here these blind men see that there is one with authority, the authority of Messiah, the authority of a king. We've seen this authority in Matthew's gospel, right? Remember in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus was preaching? And he's quoting the Old Testament, the commandments that were written by God on tablets of stone that Moses gave to the people. And as he quotes them, Jesus says, you've heard that it was said. And he quotes it. He says, but I say to you, with this incredible claim to authority, who can say, oh, I know the Bible says, but I say, who can say that? Jesus claims great authority, and then he backs it up. He puts his power on display. In the next several chapters, as he heals, he shows that he has authority over demons. To simply speak a word and spiritual power, spiritual forces flee. Jesus has authority over diseases. He can heal. With a word from a distance, do you remember the centurion who was concerned for his servant? And Jesus, Jesus was going to go and he said, you don't have to come, just say the word. And Jesus simply says the word. And from a distance, the centurion's servant is healed in an instance. Jesus has authority over disease. He has authority over disasters. Do you remember Jesus and his disciples in the boat and the wind and the waves are raging against them? And what does Jesus do? He wait, when they wake him up, he says a word and the wind and the waves are still. He even shows them through his healings and his proclamations that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He has the authority of a king to lay down a law. He has the authority of God to command all creation. This is the son of David. This is the promised one. The, the one who's bringing a kingdom where there is healing and wholeness and fullness and righteousness and justice in his teaching, in his words. Here in Jesus is the fulfillment of promise, the son of David. But, there, but there's, something, there's something neat going on here in the text as well that's worth meditating on a little bit. It, it's interesting that we're specifically told that it's as Jesus is coming out of Jericho. That this takes place. And these blind men identify him as the son of David. And as you reflect on that for a little bit, maybe, maybe it'll yield some fruit. Let's, let's think about this for a minute. Do you remember the city of Jericho from the Old Testament? And do you remember what happened there? It was a city with great walls and there was opposition against God's people when they're coming into the promised land under Joshua. And so Joshua leads the people to march around the city and on the seventh day they march around seven times and, and the walls fall down and they destroy the people who live there and everything in the city was supposed to be devoted to destruction. But not everyone in the city died. Do you remember there was one there was a woman 
with faith in the power and the saving grace of God. A prostitute named Rahab, who by putting her trust in God and helping the spies was delivered. The beginning of Matthew's gospel in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 5, we're told that this Jesus, this son of David, descended from Rahab, who was David's grandmother. These blind men see something profound in Jesus. In Jesus, the son of David, traveling through Jericho with the blood of a pagan prostitute still coursing through his veins. They know that here is one with power, but also one with mercy. One who fulfills the patterns and the promises of God to save the meek, to save the humble, to restore the losers. Those in need of grace, here is salvation in the son of David who has come, who has fulfilled all the promises, all the patterns, all the prophecies of God. It's all yes and amen in Jesus, the son of David. So they see this in him. They call on him. They keep crying out to him. They keep crying out to him. Here's the second thing they see in him that moves them to keep crying out is they see in him the fullness of power. Fullness of power. Um, I, this, this might happen in your home. This happens in our home frequently. For some reason, it's like uh, chargers for cell phones grow legs, and so they disappear. And so someone will be wandering around the house going, where's my charger? Where's the charger? And you know, there's a certain like level of angst in their voice that's like, one, I'm mad at whoever took it, but two, my phone's about to die and I'm doing something really important. Uh, you recognize your need for power in the moment you recognize your own powerlessness. The phone's about to die. I need power for it. These men... These men know that they are powerless. Look at the words. As they approach Jesus, they say, have mercy. Have mercy on us. You know, you know the difference between mercy and grace? I mean, they overlap. There's, there's, a whole lot of, um, there's a whole lot of undeserved kindness. There's a lot of goodness that comes to us through both grace and mercy. Grace uh, emphasizes the reality that we are undeserving. You don't deserve this, but God gives it to us as a free gift anyway. Mercy emphasizes the pitiful nature of the recipient as the motivating factor for the giver. Have mercy on me because I'm pathetic and I stand in need. I cannot help myself. I need your mercy. I have nothing to offer. Be moved by my plight and help me. They see their powerlessness and they call out to Jesus to have mercy. What do you do with your powerlessness? When you come to the end of yourself and you see that you're insufficient, you feel like your battery is dying. When you know that if it depends on you, you're done for. Because you know what we do sometimes? Sometimes we, we run from that. Turn on the TV, put in our headphones, go on social media. So sometimes we try to pretend like we're strong. Maybe we'll talk a good spiritual game with the people around us. 
act like we've got it together. Sometimes we just want to run away from God because we feel like something in our powerlessness and the things that have brought us to this set of circumstances, there's somehow shame attached to it. And so we don't want to own our powerlessness because we want to be better for him. And so we actually let it move us away from God. Look what they do. They cry out all the more. They cry out and cry out and cry out and cry out and people tell them to stop and they cry out all the more. Do you let your powerlessness serve you and drive you to the one who has fullness of power? Fullness of power, fullness of, of creator power. Like this is really what they need, right? When they come to Jesus and Jesus, he calls them. So they come to him and Jesus asks them this question. He says, what do you want me to do for you? That's an incredible question, right? Well, like, what do you think he can do for, for you? These guys knew what they needed. They knew what they were powerless to fix, <laughs> Our eyes don't work, Jesus. We need our eyes to work. Who can, who can heal eyes? The, the one who looks at chaos and speaks a word and brings order. The, the one who looks at darkness and speaks a word and, and brings light. The one, the one who looks at death and speaks a word and brings life. This is the one who can bring sight to blind eyes. Right? It'd be useless to ask me this. Uh, like, like I, I laugh sometimes at the things I get asked in our home. Like, can we have a second dog? What? It's insane. It's insane that we even have one dog. Can, can, we, can, we, can we have another dog? Can we have this? Can we have that? And I think, man, I can't even handle our life right now. If, if, someone, if someone came to me and said, hey, can you give me a million dollars? I'd be like, sure, if you give it to me first. I don't have the power to give you the thing that you're asking for me. But here they come and they ask Jesus for their eyes to work. Implicit in the asking is the belief that he has the power to give. Jesus, you have the fullness of power. You can heal my broken eyes. So, let's pause for a minute and think about what they've seen. They've seen in Jesus the fulfillment of promise. They've seen in Jesus the fullness of power. Let's do a little, uh, let's do a little vision test for us. So, if we're seeing what they're seeing, then that should result in what we're looking for in a close following of Jesus. If we see in Jesus the fulfillment of every promise, that should stir in us, that should inflame in us an unbreakable and unshakable hope. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. Not one single word of his will ever fall short. All of what he's come to do will be accomplished. It was finished on the cross. He's returning again. He's building his church. His kingdom is coming. We should be filled with hope. Is that how you're living? Hope and the joy that's attached to it. If, if we see in Jesus that the fulfillment of the promise that he's the son of David, he's the king with all authority, he's got authority to command, then we should be living lives that are fully obedient. 
Where we're not holding back in our obedience. I'll give you this much, Jesus, and I'll call you king. I'll put you on a throne over this part of my life, but this part of my life, I got my own throne. I'm still keeping this part back for me. You won't reign over me here, Jesus. We should never do that, but be people who are fully and completely given over to obedience to the king. If we believe that Jesus as the fullness of God's power, the creator power. And we should be calling out in his name, in prayer, audaciously, for impossible things. That's what these blind men did, right? Make our eyes work. What are the impossible things that we're asking for that we're going audaciously before the throne and saying, God, I need this impossible thing that I'm powerless to bring, but you have all power, you can bring it. Are we doing that? See, maybe on a good week, I can check one of those three boxes. So, so, so what do we do if I'm failing? What, what do I do if I'm failing the vision test? If I'm falling short? Then I would encourage you not to drop off now. But to hear the third thing that these blind men saw. Because it is for you, perhaps the most crucial thing to see about Jesus. They see in him, thirdly, they see in him the fullness of perfect pity. He is touched by their brokenness. This is really important for us to see. Do you see the way Matthew words this? Verse 33, they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. Verse 34. And Jesus, note these words, in pity. Guys, Matthew didn't have to write those words. Just could have said Jesus healed them. And the sentence would have made perfect sense. We wouldn't have ever known that anything was missing. He includes this. This is in, in the original, the word that's used. I, I love the word. It's a, it's a word that refers to bowels, like to the insides, the internal parts. It's the, the very guts of his being. This is what is moved. This is where Jesus is touched to the very core, the essence of his being. It's, it's not the heart, like, like the command center, the decision-making center of his, of his being. It's just the guts. It's the feelings, the affections, the emotions. What moves Jesus' heart so that he is stirred to the very core of his being is Pity for the broken. That's why he does what he does. In pity, he heals them. They were beggars. They were covered in dirt. When they cried out for help, people told them to keep quiet. People ignored them. You're not significant. Jesus is significant. Jesus is doing something great. You don't matter. Get to the side of the road. Stop calling out. You're broken and filthy. These are men who, as blind men, would not be able to work, not be able to provide for a family, if they were even able to ever get married. These were men who were depleted in their functionality, in their role in society their dignity was eroded they were insignificant and broken
And that's what moved Jesus to pity. That's the very thing that moves the heart of our Savior. So when he's touched by their brokenness, what does he do? He touches their shame. Again, look at, look at how Matthew words this. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes. He didn't touch their mouth, which confessed the truth. He didn't touch their head, which comprehended right things. He didn't touch their heart, which had believed the truth about Jesus. He touched what was broken. He touched the very part of them that brought them shame and that separated them from the rest of society and that broke their lives. He didn't have to. A word would have been sufficient. He didn't have to call them over. He didn't have to ask them what to do. The centurion's servant never saw Jesus. He just said a word, and from a distance, he was healed. Jesus could have just said a word. Why does he touch them? Why does he touch their eyes? Friends, Jesus' touch is his putting his finger on the problem. It removes forever the doubt that he doesn't see the worst of us. The part of us that needs to be healed. He's willing to put his finger right on it. And it, and it removes the doubt that what's shameful in us will ever repel him or cause him to flee. See, see here's, here's what we do. This is what we do in relationships with other humans, and we need to do this. We live in a fallen world, so to whatever degree, we try to shield ourselves and protect ourselves because we're like, you know what? If you knew all the things about me, you would run and you would hide and you would want to have nothing to do with me. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to selectively shield things and hide things and cover myself so that it'll be acceptable, so that rather than withdrawing from me, you'll draw near to me. And what we do is mistakenly we think Jesus will relate to us the same way, that like other people, he will be repelled by our sinfulness, by our brokenness, by our sickness, by our weakness, when in reality, he wants to put his hand right there. Because this is what has stirred his heart and drawn him toward us. Friend, what are you hiding from Jesus? What are you holding back for fear that it will repel him? He won't be scared off by you. He already sees it. Here's, here's the reality. Each one of us is going to have to answer the question that Jesus asks these blind men. What do you want me to do for you? And our greatest need, our most desperate need, 
Our most miraculous need is more than just being able to see with our eyes. It's that our dead hearts would be made alive, that we'd be forgiven, that we'd be reconciled to God. And do you understand that for that to happen, verse 28 really matters. Jesus just said that he goes to give his life as a ransom for many. That's not a separated thing. That's not a, that's not a distant thing. The apostle Peter, who's witnessing this healing, later on would write in 1 Peter that Jesus would bear our sins in his body on the cross. We can't keep Jesus at arm's length from our sin and still hope to be forgiven. To ask him to forgive us is to ask him to die in our place, which means he must be intimately acquainted with my sin and my brokenness because he has to bear it in his body. It doesn't get any more intimate than that. What Jesus is calling you to, what you must see in him, is that here is one who will not recoil at your sin or your shame, but one who is drawn out in affection and love for you in your brokenness and shame for all your rebellion. Though you deserve the curse and the wrath, there is a Savior who in pity is drawn to you, who would touch you and heal you and forgive you of your sins if you would turn to him turn away from your sins and follow Jesus see here in Jesus we see the fullness of perfect pity here is one who will go and will die in our place, the fullness of power, one who will rise again on the third day, and the fulfillment of promise, one day he will return and our eyes will behold him. So yeah, is it, is it hard to follow Jesus in this life? Absolutely, especially if your eyes are on the opposition, the enemy surrounding us, especially if your eyes are on other Christians and the ways that they fail and fall short. But if your eyes are on him, if your sight on Jesus, or if your sights are locked on Jesus, sufficiently, then you will be empowered, enabled, like these men, to without even thinking about it, intuitively get up and say, here's the one, here's the one I must follow. My Savior and my King. Let's pray.